something you'll be looking at the passage with us. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Um, Ecclesiastes is, is after Psalm and, and the Psalms and Proverbs. Or if you get to Isaiah, you've gone a little bit too far. It's nestled in there with, with the Song of Solomon as well. Um, so listen, Ecclesiastes in December, um, I know is a bit of a, a strange thing, but we have we felt like this year it would be beneficial to kind of juxtapose the, the bright shininess of, of the holidays and, and the expectation that we often put on them with the stark reality of, of Ecclesiastes. Um, because really what Ecclesiastes is asking of us um, is it, it's asking us to consider wisdom. It, it's looking at the world, and it's saying, yeah, but there's some exceptions to the way that the world seems to be going. And so it, it's forcing us to ask um, hard questions and, and to observe. Really, it's being written from the observation of a gentleman who is, who is deconstructing the world around him, who's saying, I'm not sure that there's meaning in anything. And, and, and there's no real answer given in the book of Ecclesiastes until the end. And, and so the question that we're left with as we walk through it is, there, what, what Ecclesiastes is going to reveal is this, is there's either meaning in nothing, or there's going to be meaning in everything, but there's no in-between, right? And, and so there's a, a starkness um, and a harshness to Ecclesiastes that can make us really uncomfortable. Um, because we don't deal with wisdom literature a lot, right? We're, we're used to reading through a, a gospel like John, right? Where we have John 14, 6, right? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no other way to the Father except through Him. And we take this concrete truth and we hang on to it. And that's how we're meant to deal with it. And then in Ecclesiastes, we have these observations that we're like, I, I, I feel that, I've seen that, I've experienced that, but does that mean it's true? Or has it been altered? Has it been corrupted? And so we, we, we have to wrestle with it. Um, that there's more of a, of a sense and a feel as it's driven by wisdom and poetry. And so the question before us every week in Ecclesiastes is going to be this. If death is inevitable, and it is, are we going to live in light of that inevitability or not? Are we going to live knowing that there is a day where you will stand before God or will we bury our head in the sand and pretend like that day isn't coming for us? Um, we need the pieces and the sections of Ecclesiastes, but we're also going to need the whole. right? And, and part of the, the beauty in the way that we attempt to, to handle the Scripture here, but also the difficulty is that sometimes we're just getting a piece at a time. We're not trying to say it all on a given Sunday, but it's being connected week in and week out. Um, but here's the, here's the danger for us. As someone this morning who would say you love Jesus, if, if that's where you're at, that you can go, okay, I, I think I get it. I, I get what's going on here, right? Vanity, you know, chasing the wind. And then we can kind of shut our mind and our ears off. Let me, let me give you an example of this. When, when we moved to the Middle East, um, it, was, it was shocking to me that I could answer any kind of big, I could ask a question to any Yemeni I met. If it was a big kind of life question about life or death or religion, and you would get like literally a stock answer. I mean, it was like verbatim, the same thought, the same idea, that they had just been culturally um, trained to respond, right? And, and so your mind can even be shut off a little bit because it's like, oh, that's the question, here's the answer. It was, it was as easy as that. And so we would have to work really hard to try to come up with a way to get behind the question 
to make someone actually consider and think. Um, because there was just this, this tendency to react without thinking. And before we begin to think that we're culturally superior, right, we do this as well, right? We do this at Christmas time, we do this at Easter, right, where we just kind of have, oh yeah, it's the Easter story, here's what it is. It's the Christmas story, here's what it is. We can look at it in culture and say, listen, Jesus is good, right? Sin is bad, and, and those people are doing it wrong, and, and we're doing it right, and we can keep from really like clicking our thoughts and our heart and our mind into really pondering and wrestling with what's going on. So this is a little maybe graphic for you, but Ecclesiastes is attempting to grab you by the chin and to point your, your face back out to the world and say, look at it. No, no, look at it. It's hard. And it's ugly. No, no, keep looking at it. So that you'll look within and realize it's not just them. It's not just someone else, but it's, it's, it's us as well. That it's making us look within and to consider where we have pursued vanity, where we have been chasing smoke that we can see but we can't quite grasp it, and yet we've built our life around it. And so Ecclesiastes, listen, is going to make us, it's going to continue to make us uncomfortable. And that being said, let's pick up in chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead were fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And I saw all the toil and all the skill and work that came from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil than a striving after wind. And again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all of his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling? and depriving myself of pleasure. This also is vanity and an, and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has, has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone... Two will withstand him. A three-fold cord is not quickly broken. It changes that wedding passage for you a little bit, doesn't it? Right? Like you, you, you see that passage pulled out, and you're like, huh, I, I wonder why the pastor didn't read all of this at my wedding, right? If you had that read. So we have um, just kind of, an, again, an emotive, dark passage where the observer is just, he, he's going, listen, I've looked around the world and it is dark and it is broken. And I see oppression and wrong. Remember in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, right, in, in much knowledge, there's much vexation. Right? Like this idea that ignorance is bliss. And once you've seen the corruption and the brokenness in the world, 
it's hard not to continue to see more and more of it. Right? There's, there's, it's where dark humor comes from. Right? That as we have observed the world, that we begin to try to figure out how are we going to put things together? How are we going to process this? And you can see why dark humor would emerge. Because I see all the oppressions that are under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. It is painful, and it's dark. And yet, if we're honest, we can begin to just rattle off a Rolodex, right, of, um, of examples of this. Right? That you hear stories in the news of, of parents who are meant to care for and to cherish children, bringing pain and misery and sometimes even death. Right? And then the institution that's meant to protect them, right, comes in and brings harm in innocent situations, right? You think of bankers who steal, right, who aren't keeping your money, they're, they're taking your money. You think of those pastors who are meant to shepherd people and to create safety and security, and instead they prey upon the vulnerable. Right? Teachers who are meant to entrust um, students with knowledge and, and, and enrichment and take advantage and harm kids in relationships. Right? Governments who betray their people. Militaries who inflict violence upon their own or, or tragedy upon others. Judges who don't bring justice, but bring corruption. Right? Like as we think about these, right, you can think in any world, in any, in any job, in any title, in any responsibility where it's meant to be something, and it often is, we also know where it's been corrupted and it's been broken. And we can become overwhelmed with that. And if we're not careful, we can focus only on the negative and only see the oppression. And that's what we, we see here with the author. He's saying, like, I see it. I see the tears of the oppressed and there's no one to comfort them. He's, he's being emphatic. Um, He's speaking somewhat in, in poetic hyperbole. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And he, he goes very dark here. And I thought the dead who were already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. He's basically saying, because they don't have to see it. They're done. And, and you'll hear this often in, in, in someone who is um, elderly. They'll say, man, the world is, is broken and it's ugly and, I, and I'm ready to be done. Right, because I've seen it for decades. And then he goes, you think that's dark enough? He goes even further. But better than both is he who has not yet been born, right? And hasn't had to see any of it. Like that you can just hear the lament in him as he's expressing what he has seen in the world. And it's in moments like this where in sermons we I think we often we expect levity, right? Now make a joke, right? So that I don't have to feel it. Right? Or, or quickly take us to Jesus right, so that we can get away from this. But Ecclesiastes is asking us to sit and to linger and to look at it. And it makes us squirm and it makes us uncomfortable a little bit. We want to avert our eyes. And so we avert our eyes in, in a lot of ways. We can become indifferent. We can become complacent. We can become Pollyanna, right, where we only talk about the good and we ignore the, the difficulty in the world. And he's saying, I, I want you to look. I want you to consider what's happening here and what's, what's going on. Because he wants to move it from a corporate, kind of institutional, big, out there oppression more into a, into a closer realm of, of our lives. And he's going to do that by looking at, at work and our toil in life. 
and that there's some unexpected forms of oppression. Right? Look at verse 4. Then I saw all the toil and all the skill and work, and it comes from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. And what he's going to show us here as we, as we look at this is he's going to say, we actually in our work can oppress ourselves. And in our oppression of ourselves, we can oppress others that we don't know, like stepping on their backs. And we can oppress those that are close to us, our family and our friends. And so he's taking oppression and saying, yeah, we know there's global, international, uh, domestic, huge oppression. But let's look inwardly here as well to look at where um, oppression might be. So, I saw that toil and all skill and work come from man's envy of his neighbor. This is vanity and striving after wind. Verse 4. He's saying, listen, in our work, it's, it's like we, we see accomplishment, we see money, we see success, and we can see it, just like you can see smoke. And he's like, and so you run after it, and you get close to it, and you try to grab it, and it goes a little bit away from you. And, you're, and he's like, you see it, and you continue to pursue it but you can't quite grasp it. And yet you continue because you can see it. You continue to run hard after it, not realizing that you're never going to be able to hold on to it. Um, picture that we, we've had a, we have a lot of parades in Tampa, right? And if you've been in a parade, kids lining the street, right? Candy's being thrown. And even though the vehicles and the horses and everything are moving slow, have you ever noticed, seen a kid that just, like the candy hits and it bounces back towards it, back towards the float. And that kid who's like falling the brick street, he sees it, and even though there's danger, what his eyes are on is the candy. And so like head down, eyes on candy, I'm going after it, not knowing he's about to get run over, right, by a kid on a four-wheeler or by a float or by a horse, right? And he's in desperate need of someone to like emphatically say, hey, the candy's not worth what's about to happen. Right? It's not worth it. And yet in that moment, they're so singularly focused on what's taking place that they can avoid the reality of what's going on around them. Right? We, we can do the same thing in our careers, in our, in our hobbies, in our toil, that we can see what we're trying to get at, and we're chasing it, right? There's something we're actually chasing, and we're oblivious to what's going on around us. We're oblivious to what the cost is and what is coming down the road. And so the author of Ecclesiastes is saying is, is death is inevitable. It is coming. You get one shot at this life, right? And so when you end it, what are you grasping? What are you holding on to? Is it more? Because in work, once you've accomplished that big project, guess what happens? They give you another one, right? And once you get a bonus... Then it's like, well, I need my next bonus. Or I get a promotion, I need another promotion. Or I, need a, I get approval, I want more approval. Or we've had our best year ever and hit all of our sales goals. And you're, you, no one ever goes, all right, we're, we, we're good, we did it. It's like, well, now let's do it again. Right? Or let's, or let's, let's go more. It's, it's more approval, more work, more projects, more bonuses, more promotions. And what it does is it creates anxiety in people. Right? So on the front end of your work career, you see guidance counselors and aptitude tests and people freaking out, trying to figure out what my college major is going to be because I've got to set everything in place so that I can accomplish this by 25, so I can accomplish this by 40, so that I can retire at this age. Right? We then see it in midlife crises. 
we then see it at the end of life where people start to go, was it worth it? I said, what did I, what did I do? What did I accomplish? That we assume that when we get our goal, we will be satisfied after the striving. And yet, whether it's been in something big or something small, you have found that you actually weren't satisfied. Maybe it was a weight loss goal, right? And you put in energy and effort and you hit that goal and like you're so thrilled to see the scale say that back to you. And then you're not like, well, I think I'm good. Right? You either want to lose more or you realize the fact that you got there wasn't, it didn't satisfy you. It wasn't sufficient. And even though you succeeded and you did it, there's still a longing for something. Or your bank account hitting a certain mark. And we just kind of shrug our shoulders and we're like, man, that didn't work. Oh, well, let's keep going. And we just, we stay on the cycle of striving after smoke, after wind, after vapor. And so what he does here is he gives us an example in verse 7. And he basically says, says I've observed, hey, I think you'll know this guy too. And he describes one and he says, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, he's saying he has no relationship, not a son or a brother. He's not working on behalf of someone, yet there's no end to his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches. He never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? He's like, we can get so in it that we don't ever look up and say, why am I doing this? Who am I doing this for? And so he's observing what this looks like and is drawing our attention to it. And in that example, it's a reminder that in our pursuit of toil and approval, of work, of recognition, of more money, of more acclaim, that we can leave those who are closest to us behind. Right? That we we would say that we're doing it for them and we're really doing it for ourselves. And so we, we're not only oppressing ourselves, we can oppress those around us who are counting on us, have relationships with us. We go back um, to that, the idea of oppression at the beginning. He's also reminding us of this, is how does oppression come? It comes with power being in the hands of a few over many. And even when a reformer comes in and they grab power, they then use their power against those who were formerly in need of reform. And he says what's happened is that we oppress each other by stepping on one another's backs to get more. Instead of ever being satisfied or ever saying it's sufficient, it's like, I need more than you, so I'm going to step on you to get there. And we might do this on a small scale in our home or at work, or we might do this on a national scale. We're like, we need more. And so we will hold a certain people or a certain type of people or another nation down in order to obtain what our hearts are striving for and yet will not be satisfied by. And he's like, it's, it's insanity. It's foolishness. And so he's built all of this on work. And he almost anticipates the response of like, well, if that's the case, let's just stay away from work. Go to verse 5. But the fool, he's going to hold the other extreme in check. The fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. It's a, it's a proverb here. What he's saying is this, is the fool is the one who drops out and says, it's not worth it, I'm not going to work, I'm not going to do anything. 
Right? He just sits back and he laughs at the ones who work real hard. And he says he eats his own flesh. What, what, what's he saying here is this, is that he cannibalizes himself. Who he gives himself to is not to work or fame or acclaim or money. He gives himself to himself. And he has nothing to give then to anyone else. That he is the epitome of a fool. That he's selfish. And in the end, the lack of self-control, right? The lack of doing anything means he's got nothing other than himself to consume. And it's this sad picture. So he holds up work that's striving after the wind, and he holds up the one who does nothing, and he shows these two extremes. And he's like, neither one of them works. It's not in doing too much. It's not in doing too little. But he gives us some hope here in Ecclesiastes. It's it's a bit of a a unique thing that he's doing that already. Look at verse 6. Again, a short, pithy proverb here. Better is a handful of quiet than two hands full of oil and striving after the wind. Better is a handful quiet. He's saying this calm, peace, deep soul security. Having a little bit of that is so much better than having both hands active and available and working and having nothing to hold on to. Or you're striving and you can't grab it. He's like, now you're holding quietness of soul, spirit. It's a deep longing, and he has it. He's actually grasping it. Listen, as we walk through a book like Ecclesiastes, we have to consider the whole of Scripture. Otherwise, Ecclesiastes could destroy us. And so we know this about work, that God has given us work, that he gave us work before sin entered the world, before the fall of man in Genesis 3 that work was assigned to Adam. It was an expected thing. The Scripture says we're going to have responsibilities and work in heaven. But work has been corrupted, and so it feels broken because it is, and it feels sin-induced and because it is. But work itself is a good and right thing. And so we don't want here to throw too many rocks at work itself because God has given work to be a good thing for man and woman to do. 1 Corinthians 15.58 says this. We referenced this a couple weeks ago. Therefore, my beloved brothers, Paul writes, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Right? It seems to be contradicting Ecclesiastes. But what he's telling us here is that there's a type of work that is not in vain. And there's a type of work that is in vain. This morning, in preaching, if we are not spirit-dependent in our giving of this message, of the receiving of the message, if we're not dependent upon the Spirit to bring eternal fruit, this work is in vain. Because I have no ability, no means, um, no articulation available to me to actually touch and twist and change your heart. The Spirit of God does that. And so I can spit into the wind for 40 years, right, crafting and orating, and without the Spirit of God working and maneuvering for our good and for our benefit, it is in vain. And so it's, it's not saying, so we don't then preach. We do preach. 
But we pray expectantly, dependently, trusting the Lord to do what we cannot do. And yet we get to be a vessel pointing to hope and truth and goodness. <coughs> Excuse me. We have to be reminded, right, that preaching is going to end. There will be a day where there's no more preaching. There will be a day where there's no more ministry because ministry and preaching and church, right, aren't the, they, they aren't the end-all, be-all. Jesus is. Jesus is the goal. Jesus is what we're striving after. Jesus is what we need and what our souls long for. It's not just in better work or in different work. It's actually in the source of wisdom in life. It is in Jesus. And so we want our work and our toil to matter. There is never going to be an end of a checklist of things to do as a dad, as a mom, right? At your work, they're never going to be like, hey, you've done it all? Why don't you just take the day off and go home? Right? Like that, like that, doesn't, that doesn't happen, right? If you, maybe you have a really good boss, right? But they still expect you to eventually come back. Right? Like there's there's no end of, of the need for, for prayers or for visitation or for ministry. Right. And so I have to if I'm gonna lay my head down at night, my checklist is never done. It's never done. So why? Right? Like that's the Ecclesiastes is saying, so why? Because it is revealing to us in our work that you're not God. You need sleep. You need rest. Right? You are not God. And so you're not as in control as you think. You don't know as much as you think. And it's not been placed on your shoulders as much as you think. We have been given work because it is God-honoring when we do it in trust and dependence upon Him. And He brings forth the harvest and the fruit from that work. Which means... We're doing it for the approval of Him and not for man. Right? Think about um, seeing a kid or a grandkid or someone in your classroom, right? and they, they're trying something for the first time, and they're working through a math worksheet, or they're writing a paper, or they're drawing a picture, and it is not good. Right? Like it, by, in no quantifiable way could you say it's good, and yet you can be pleased in it because of the intent and the effort and the trust that they're trying and they're getting better. And so the teacher was like, A plus, gold star, good job. Right? Mom puts the picture on the fridge. One, right, in several years, the kid will regret that they ever did and be like, why do you keep it? Right? Because they, they've seen their own talent change. Right? God has given us things to do and to walk in and to be following and pursuing to re- receive the approval of God, not of men. So why are we able to do this? Why can we begin to leave the mindset of Ecclesiastes and come into this? Because the work is finished. Jesus accomplished it at the cross. You cannot save yourself. You cannot earn His approval. It's a gift that has been given because Jesus has done it on our behalf. And so if we can begin to grasp that and hold on to that, that He has rescued us, not due to our merit, but because of His mercy and grace. Then we can begin to walk through life saying, okay, Jesus, I'm going I'm to toil and work for You. 
because you've given me what, I've, what I need and what I couldn't earn. So in 1 Corinthians 3, he also references the day, right? The day where we will stand before God. And on that day, our works will be shown and revealed. He's also talking like Ecclesiastes. And in that, here's how Paul writes this. This is 1 Corinthians uh, 3, beginning in verse uh, 12, or sorry, verse 13. Yeah, verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. So he's saying, if you do work built on the fact that Jesus has first saved you, and now you're working for his glory, for his approval, and trust and dependence upon him, a right awareness of yourself and of him, each one's work will become manifest. For the day, judgment day, will disclose it. It'll be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So he's saying, listen, there will be a day where your death or Jesus' return will come. You will stand before the Lord, and all that will be revealed. Everything, everything will be revealed. And that which was done in trust and dependence and honor of the Lord will be handed back to Him. It will be shown to be pure and good and right. And it will be worship and response to Him that you lived your life in a way that was trusting and pleasing to Him. And that which wasn't will be burned up and will be shown to have been worthless. So it means, church, that those who have those corrupt institutions, those people who have one, one in this life and gained approval and power and prestige, it will all be revealed to have been false. There will be vindication. There will be justice. There will be honesty and truth for them, but also for us. And sometimes if we're not careful, we just want it for them. But it will happen in our life as well. So it's finished in the work of Jesus. He has called us so trust Him in the midst of this. And so the call this morning is not to work and chase wind. And it's not to fold our hands and eat our flesh. It is to live in light of the reality that we can be wise because of Jesus. And we can find this and navigate this middle ground between these two. And trust and depend upon Jesus and, and oppose injustice and reflect the image of God, and go to bed and sleep at night. Right? We can do real work and hard things, and it's not on you to see it accomplished. God is at work, and He's using us as tools in His hand. We see this in verses 9-12, through 12, right? That He's moving our thoughts off of ourself and onto others. The two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. Like it's not just about you anymore. You're bringing others in. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who's alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. He's, he's just super practical. Like if, if two lie together at night, right? If you're traveling, you're staying warm, right? If, if you find an enemy and there's more of you than them, you win, right? It's just this, the practicality of quit making it about you. It's about us. He's calling us into community. And so what this looks like is there's no longer this sacred and secular divide in work. We desperately need godly teachers. 
who will go into the school and image the character of God by speaking truth and being people of integrity and, right, and pointing kids right, and, and caring for them and educating them. Right? We need godly police officers who will be out in the streets all right, opposing corruption, exposing it, and being God-honoring, truth-honoring, trustworthy people of integrity that bring justice. We need judges who aren't corrupt, but are just, because our hearts long for and cry out for it. Right? We need people in whatever vocation or work God has given and wired and equipped you for to do it in a way that pleases God because it's been good for all of us. And if you're walking in a way that serves and honors and pleases Jesus, then those around you benefit. And our toil now is not striving after wind that we can't grasp it, but it actually begins to go into the nooks and crannies of the world and begins to change things. And the kingdom of God begins to break forth in this life and in this world. Listen, there's a moment in the New Testament on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus pulls back the veil for just a second. And, and they get to see Him in all of His glory. And, and what, were their, what, was, what were the disciples' response? We're not leaving. Let's stay here. Like, we'll build, we'll worship, let's just stay. Like, they saw clearly, right? And all of a sudden now the parade, it wasn't about the candy, right? It's about the reality of what's going on. They saw really what was going on, reality. When we image God in your job, whether you love it, or you hate it, right? Whether it's a job that brings you approval and acclaim or money or not. Those things aren't what matters anymore. It's about bearing Jesus' image in that place. When that happens, the veil begins to be pulled back in the world. The kingdom of God begins to shine forth and we see oppression and injustice begin to flee because the kingdom of God is coming forth. Right? That is the work that Jesus was doing and reminding us of that He has come. And so when we see Him weeping over Jerusalem, when we see Him sighing and grieving over brokenness and, and, and broken bodies, it was because the perfect world has been corrupted, but it won't be forever. And He is bringing to bear restoration upon it. The death of death was in the death of Jesus breaking forth in this world, putting our enemies to open shame at the cross. The fact that He will one day judge and vindicate and reveal all that is true and all that were lies. Some that we believe right now to be true will be revealed as lies in individuals and in institutions. Church, a call for us then is to go, verse 6, better is a handful of quiet. He's saying walk wisely. Wisely in this case, seeing that Jesus is sufficient. There is always more to pursue and to grasp financially and acclaim and fame, promotion and approval. And the world will say, go get it. That's what makes you a winner. But quietness is better than two hands striving after toil and not being able to grab it. Wisdom is saying that Jesus is sufficient. That He is calling us to live in light of the truth that He is enough and that we are to bring light and His image to this world. As teachers, moms, dads, as grandparents, as neighbors, 
as postal workers, as office workers, as pastors, as CASA volunteers, like, and whatever God has called you to, that you are imaging Jesus. And it means that you will probably not pursue some things that you could have pursued. But you never would have obtained the satisfaction from them anyway. So, he's asking us, look at the world, look within, and now walk in a way that trusts Jesus. Laying down things that can be laid down. And knowing that one day you'll be vindicated even if the world doesn't get it today. There's a, there's a lifetime of application here. right? A lifetime of gospel community conversation as to how we do this because occasionally we're going to have to be reminded of it. right? We don't figure this out today and then move forward forever on a straight and narrow. Right? We're navigating this and we need each other why we're a family, the church, people of God this morning. Would we be a people who would pursue a quietness in our handful? Let's pray. Father, would you give us the grace we need to do the uncomfortable work at, at looking at the world around us? of gazing upon the brokenness, the struggle, and not being too quick to turn to humor or to levity or to just the fact that it's not currently us. God, would we wrestle with it? And then, Father, would we put our hands and our feet and our minds to work, trusting the results and the fruit to you? And so we can give our life so many causes. But would we go to sleep at night knowing that we are in desperate need of you and that we can rest well because you haven't asked us to be God. You haven't asked us to have all the answers. You haven't asked us to fix all the problems. We have a Savior. We're not the Savior. But Jesus, this morning, would we trust that you are? And Lord, would it begin to open up our eyes to... Um, a world that, and a life that isn't of striving, but is of faithfully walking through trusting and depending upon you, gaining your approval. But we need you in this. Give us eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen.